You've likely heard the expression before, a bad lot in life. It's an idiomatic expression that can be explained, at least sometimes, by other idioms. Someone might say, well, to have a bad lot in life is to get the short end of the stick. Or to have a bad lot in life, you know, is to be dealt a bad hand. You might find a literary character moving from one part of the country to another part of the country or one part of the world to another part of the world because they did not like their lot in life. Perhaps you worked or work alongside of someone who when something goes wrong says something along the lines of this, you know, this is just my lot in life. As though to say, this is just the kind of thing that happens to me. All in all, lot, when used in that way, is an idiomatic expression that has to do with a person's situation in life. Now, from a secular perspective, that lot is random. But from a biblical perspective, it is not. As a matter of fact, according to Acts chapter 17, verse 26, God has ordained the exact times and boundaries in which people should live. The lot that a person has falls under the realm of God's sovereign purposes. Proverbs 16.33 says that the lot is cast, but the decision is from the Lord. And that's dealing with literal lots, but it's true of metaphoric lots as well. When it comes to the Christian, however, no Christian should ever say, I have a bad lot in life. Because when it comes to the Christian, in the most ultimate sense, no Christian can say that. No Christian should say, you know, I really just got a bad lot in life. Rather, the Christian should say, similar to what David says in this psalm, you know, I've been given a pleasant lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. In this psalm, we'll be reminded of reasons of why that is so. First, I briefly want to give you a psalm reading reminder. As we come into this psalm, I want to remind you of something that I periodically remind you of, that when you go into a psalm, there are certain things that you want to be on the lookout for on a regular basis. And the first thing I would encourage you to be on the lookout for is finding out what you can about the psalmist's context, his historical context, his circumstances. Sometimes you could find this out via the superscript. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you could find this out via the psalm itself as you go through the details of the psalm, and sometimes you can't. But it's good to be on the lookout for it nonetheless. Second thing I want to encourage you to do when you go through a psalm, if you're reading it on your own, is to look and see if there are legitimate ways in which that psalm speaks of or points to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see an example of that, a rather explicit one today as we study Psalm 16. And the third thing, I've reminded you of this uh, a number of times, and I'll remind you of it again, is that remember, this wasn't just, say, in this case, a psalm of David or a mictum of David. This was meant to be sung by the people of God and the congregation of Israel. All of God's true people were to sing this, even as God's people are to be instructed and can sing this or say this in one way or another now, of course, through New Covenant lenses. Now, before diving into the psalm, uh, the text itself of the psalm, let's dive into the superscript rather briefly. The superscript reads, A Mictum of David. Now, there are six psalms in the entire Psalter. So, in all 150 psalms, there are six psalms that are identified as mictums. Here is the first one. 
The rest are found in Psalm 56 through Psalm 60. The word is often noted to be of an uncertain origin, and many commentators propose many suggestions, but they usually do speak to uh, whatever suggestion they have with some measure of a lack of definitude. Um, Some suggestions include the following. Some suggest that the word that's used here uh, implies an engraving. Um, that is derived from a Hebrew word that bears that meaning. And so a victim of David could speak of an engraving, and I'll say why they suggest that may be in a moment. Others, like Martin Luther, suggested that victim meant golden jewel. Because there are certain Hebrew words that could be related to engraving or gold, so those are some possibilities. Others, looking to the Septuagint, see it, meaning the word victim, as either meaning inscription or writing, And the latter connoting the idea, to use language from Dr. Barak, the idea of indelible preservation. So that could be the idea of it being an inscription, an engraving, that this psalm was to be marked with a kind of indelible preservation, teaching very unique and specific things, perhaps. Again, these are hypotheses when you come to superscripts of some measure of an uncertain origin. Well, we do not know exactly what the word mictum means with definitude, but we do know that this was a psalm of David, written as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. We'll get into the psalm itself now, beginning with Psalm 16, verse 1, which reads, Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. So this psalm begins with an opening plea. Take notice of it. It's the only one you're going to see in this psalm. It's the only petition. And here it is, right at the beginning of the psalm. Preserve me. Or you might say, keep me. Implication, watch me so as to protect me. Or watch over me so as to protect me. David's outward circumstances were often tangible reminders of his need for God's protection and preservation. Now, we don't know David's exact historical context, but as you look through the psalm, you do get some hints. Verse 1 right here, he's praying for preservation, implying that he needs some measure of protection. In verse 4, he's talking about others who are chasing after false gods, offering drink offerings of blood. You get to verse 8, and he has confidence in God that he would not be moved. You get to verse 10, and he speaks of having confidence that God would not leave his soul in Sheol, this may suggest that to one degree or another, his circumstances were somewhat harrowing or somewhat threatening. And so he appealed. He appealed to his God. You look at the text here. It says, preserve me, O God. Here he identifies God via that name or that title, El, a shortened form of Elohim. And when you see Elohim or El, it's usually a title that connotes God's power or God's strength. So he's looking for his strong and his mighty God to preserve and protect him. Now, you and I may not be on the run from Saul or Absalom. Presumably, you're not going to leave here and have a battalion of Philistines attack you on the way out. I hope you don't have to deal with somebody who is cunning like Doeg the Edomite. We don't have those kind of problems, but we nonetheless can pray, even like David prayed right here in verse 1, Preserve me, O God. 
And we could do it through New Testament lenses, thinking of how Jesus told his disciples to pray in Matthew 6. So when we say, preserve me, we could have the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer in view when Jesus told his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. So you could say, Lord, I'm praying that you preserve me. I know there are things I need preservation and protection from. I know I may be tempted towards this. I may, I know I may be given towards that. So I'm asking for you, God, to preserve me and to protect me. We can pray for God to preserve us and protect us from the temptations of the flesh, from the pitfalls of pride, the attractions of this world, from envy, from apathy, from indifference, and so on. So I would encourage you in this moment, consider what fiery darts are often directed your way. What could you pray to God in view of and say, preserve me, O God, from these things? What fiery darts are usually leveled your way, directed your way? Next thing I want you to see here is that David had an argumentation behind his petition. Look at the language here. Preserve me, O God, for. So in other words, preserve me, O God, for, on the basis of, or because of, and this is his reasoning. He's arguing, so to speak. For, in you I put my trust. And that could be translated or rendered as, in you I take refuge which is, again, a good reminder of what trusting God looks like. Running to Him, going to Him for refuge. And David's argumentation here is very simple. David put his hope in God, and as a result of putting his hope in God, he expected God's help. Preserve me, because I'm not looking to anyone else. Preserve me, this is my argument, I'm coming to you, and you alone. Powerful argumentation. David did not trust in man to preserve him. David did not put his trust in his trust. David did not put his faith in his faith. David said, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Now I want to take a moment here as a tremendously important theological aside. I think it's worth noting that this plea is paradigmatic. It forms a kind of paradigm, I would argue, of how a sinner is saved from the wrath of God. Anyone who is saved from the wrath of God has made a similar kind of plea with a similar kind of argumentation. Preserve me, O God! Preserve me, deliver me, save me from, keep me from the wrath to come, the wrath that I deserve, for in you alone and in your Son alone I put my trust. You see the paradigm there? You see the similarities? The idea when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's as though you're saying to God, preserve me, save me, protect me, keep me from the wrath to come, the wrath that I deserve, for I put my trust in you alone and in what you have done in sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins and to rise from the grave. I put my trust in no one else. I do not put my trust in myself nor in my works. I put my trust in you and what you have done in sending your Son. You see the paradigm? This, I do think, is an expression that well depicts how a sinner is justified and how a saint ought to live. Preserve me, O God. For in you alone I put my trust. Now what's also interesting about this prayer, 
for protection is that it's found within a hope-filled and rather cheerful, if you can use that expression, psalm. Really, it's a, it opens up with a petition, but that's the only petition you're going to see. And the psalm as it follows is rather hope-filled and I would even say cheerful. Those words aren't exactly ones that you would quickly associate with a prayer of preservation, um, but nonetheless, that's what we see. What follows are a series of statements that assert David's communion and confidence with God. That brings us to verse 2 where we read, Oh, my soul, that's inserted there by the translators, kind of a, an implied statement. So not there in the original text, though implied. You have said to the Lord, and that could be rendered as I have said to the Lord, but could also be rendered as you have said to the Lord. You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. So after petitioning the Lord, in verse 1, David then recalls an earlier address. Namely, how he called Yahweh, you see the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, how he called Yahweh Adonai, how he called Yahweh Lord. While Yahweh is God's covenant name, the other Lord here, which is the capital L and not capital letters that follow, that refers to a title, Adonai, Lord. Adonai is the title that basically means Lord or Master. David had a proper view of his God. You look at verse 1 and verse 2, you see David's proper view of God. He saw God, verse 1, as his refuge, and then he also saw God, verse 2, as the one to whom he owed submission. That's a balanced view of God that we need to have. God is the one to whom we look for refuge, and God is the one to whom we owe submission, because he is Lord. Note also the personal nature of the address, particularly in use of the first person possessive as it comes across in our English translation. Notice what David said. He said, my Lord, my Lord. This is David who in Psalm 23 said, the Lord is my shepherd. This is David who in Psalm 5 verse 2 said, give heed to my cry, my King and my God. In Psalm 18, uh, we'll see at the opening verses of Psalm 18 quite a few personal possessives that are used. In Psalm 18, verse 2, for instance, David wrote, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, my shield, my stronghold. See, this wasn't just doctrine to him. It was doctrine, but it wasn't just doctrine. It was a personal reality to him. That the Lord was his God. And he saw the beauty of not only knowing Yahweh personally, but he also saw the beauty of submission to him as well. The beauty of knowing the true God personally and the beauty of submitting to him as well. But watch what he says next. As it comes across in our text, it says, My goodness is nothing apart from you. Now, the idea being, and that could be rendered and understood in different ways, um, all the good that I have is nothing apart from you, or everything good in my life is dependent upon you, the entirety of my well-being and every good thing that I receive is dependent upon you or derived from you. It's as though if you were to put the good things in your life in spatial terms, and you were to just imagine them all, it would be as though the whole canopy of God is spread out over the entirety of them and sustains each one of them. You have no good. You have no well-being 
apart from God. And that's essentially what David was saying here personally. I have no good. My good does not extend beyond you. As far as my good goes, you go. By way of canopy over it and by way of sustaining under it. What a beautiful picture. So in verse 2, David exulted in his Lord who calls heaven his throne. Then in verse 3, he rejoices in the saints that are on the earth. Verse 3 reads, As for the saints, the holy ones, who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So you might say that we see David's love for God implied in verse 1 and in verse 2. And we see David's love for God's people explicitly stated here in verse 3. That's whom David is speaking about here. That's who he's speaking about. He says, they are the saints, i.e. the holy ones, the set-apart ones who are on the earth. This is an identification for God's people. We see this term used rather frequently in the New Testament, that God's people are the holy ones, that they have been set apart by the grace of God. And David is using that kind of designation here. As for the holy ones who are on the earth, David identified them, you look at the second half of verse 3, as the excellent ones. They're the majestic. They're the noble ones in whom was all his delight. We'll come back to that last part in a moment. There's a children's book titled, Some Things Go Together, where the author wrote a series of rhythmic couplets uh, listing things that go together like gardens with flowers, clocks with hours, moths with screen, grass with green, and it goes on, goes on, I'm not going to read you the whole book, but it goes on and there's a lot of things that go together. Uh, there's a picture of a mother reading to her child and then saying, leaves with trees and you with me. Now the mom depicted in the story was basically showing her child, hey, some things just go together. And they go together like you and I go together. And I think as we see verse 3 here, we're reminded of some things that just go together like love for God and love for God's people. They just go together. You can't really, from a biblical standpoint, have one without having the other. If you love God, you love His people. If you love His people, you love Him. There are some things that just go together. And that reality is not just for Old Testament psalmists like David, it's for New Testament saints like those who are in Colossae. The Colossians, for instance, were told when Paul wrote to them, just about the opening of his letter, beginning in verse 3, Paul wrote this, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Watch this. Verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. They just go together. You have faith in Christ. You have a love for God's people. So Paul gave not only thanks for the Colossians, but he also heard of two things concerning them. Faith in Christ and love for the saints. And lest we think that's a special, unique kind of case, let me draw a couple of examples from John's first epistle to see how both sides of that coin are communicated there. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, John wrote, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. But then watch this. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 2, John writes, By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. 
the two just go together. Like salt and vinegar. <laughs> like peanut butter and jelly. Like other examples you could think of, love for God and love for his people just go together. That doesn't mean it's always easy. It often isn't. It doesn't mean it's never difficult. It sometimes is. <laughs> it just means that's the way it is. You could ask David, and he would say in no uncertain terms, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And the Holy Spirit didn't check him at that point and say, whoa, calm down. You're getting a little too excited here, David. That's a little bit too much of a hyperbolic statement for the Scriptures. No, the Holy Spirit led him to write that, and that's how he felt. It was okay, and it was right. Again, to say it one more time for now, because the two just went together. And it's a right thing. It would make sense then that David's love for God implied in verses 1 and 2, and David's love for God's people in verse 3 would then lead to a third thing we take notice of, his repudiation of idolatry that we see in verse 4. In verse 4 we read, Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another god. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. So right here we see David is renouncing worldly idolatry. He is basically saying that he didn't want anything to do with other forms of false worship. This is the logical outworking of verses 1 through 3. Where there's true love for God and true love for His people, there's true repudiation of idolatry. True repudiation of idolatry. Now let's look at what David calls our attention to. He calls our attention in particular to the self-destructive nature of idolatry. You see that in the beginning of verse 4. Their sorrows shall be multiplied. The language is very similar to the language that's used in Genesis 3.16. Multiplication of sorrows. So sorrows will be exponentially multiplied for those who hasten. Now the word there could be rendered as barter for or exchange for or paid a dowry for. Hasten, I think, well expresses what this would look like after other gods. Gods is in italics in the New King James rendering because it's not there in the text, though it's clearly implied. So multiplication of sorrows for those who hasten after, make an exchange for truth for a lie, and hasten after false gods. Such sorrow is highly likely in the present for those who practice one form of idolatry or another. If you want an example, you can go to 1 Kings 18 and just look at the sorrow that the prophets of Baal experienced during their encounter with Elijah on Mount Carmel. But that sorrow is exponentially multiplied even further when the judgment happens that is inescapable for those who never repudiate idolatry. Sorrows multiplied for those who practice idolatry. David said he would not offer their drink offerings of blood Right? So that's pagan worship. That's not the kind of worship you see in the Old Testament. There were sacrifices of blood. There weren't drink offerings of blood. This is a form of pagan worship. He's saying he will not offer their drink offerings of blood and his lips were not going to pay them any honor or any homage. So in other words, I'm not going to engage in pagan sacrificial rituals and he would not call upon false gods. That appears to be what he's saying based upon the language here in the context. He may be saying um, the language when he says here, nor take up their name on my lips, while contextually connected with pagan worship and paying a false deity homage, it may even imply that he was not going to speak about them 
lest he render them some form of honor that they didn't deserve. For example, when you called Baal, Baal, the word Baal meant Lord or owner. So that's a possibility, though the context here speaks of worship. I won't take their names upon my lips. David's disavowal here reminds me of a particular line from the traditional marriage vows. You might recall, in the traditional marriage vows, the person officiating the marriage ceremony would ask the groom with respect to the bride, and then eventually the the bride with respect to the groom, the following questions. Do you promise to love her, comfort her, honor and keep her for better or worse, for richer and poorer, in sickness and health, and here's the part I want to call your attention to, and forsaking all others, be faithful only to her for as long as you both shall live. In other words, faithfulness to one's spouse implied the expectation of the repudiation of all other relationships that could infringe upon that sacred place that was reserved only for one's spouse. So in pledging yourself to your bride, and for the bride in pledging yourself to the groom, do you pledge to forsake all others so as to keep all others from that sacred ground that is reserved only for the spouse to whom you are pledging fidelity? And it works the same for the Christian. As we read verse 4, we can see a lot of application to the Christian life. Having been espoused to Jesus Christ, you forsake all other contenders and pretenders to and for the throne. Having been espoused to Christ, you essentially say, I love Him and I repudiate all others. I can't walk down the same streets of worldliness anymore. I cannot park my philosophical assumptions in the lot of religious pluralism. I just can't do it. I'm pledged to the Lord Jesus Christ. I can no longer pitch my tent towards the lusts of Sodom. I can't do it. I'm pledged to Him. And in being pledged to Him, I am repudiating and forsaking all others that would contend upon that sacred space that belongs only to Him. Having looked upon Jesus and seen the light of His beautiful face, you say, I don't want anything in the way that's going to obstruct that view. Like David, your fidelity to Jesus causes you to turn your back on idolatry. You don't want idolatry to obscure your view of Jesus' wonderful face. Now, as we look at the next three verses, we'll see David's contentment and confidence in the present. First, we'll look at verses 5 and 6, and then we'll look at verse 7. In verses 5 and 6, we read, O Lord, or O Yahweh, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. So while others, verse 4, were hastening after other gods, and likely for what they thought the other gods could bring them, David was content with his God and with his circumstances. His He communicates that here using a mix of language from the book of Numbers and the book of Joshua. Speaking of the latter, when you look at the text and you see words like portion and inheritance and lot and lines, they can recall the distribution process when the children of Israel came into the land of Canaan. And as they dislodged Canaanites, they were given portions of the land. 
David is using that kind of imagery. Just how God gave to the tribe certain allotments of land. David is using that kind of metaphoric imagery right here to speak of his lot in life. The lot that God had given him. Now notice why that's instructive, particularly in light of this psalm. In verse 1, he's saying, preserve me, O God. But yet he's content with his lot in life and he's content with his God. So you can be in a situation where you're saying, God, I need your help. God, preserve me. And yet at the same time, you could say, but I'm perfectly content ultimately with my God. I have a good lot in life. David here kind of uses language that at least to me is reminiscent of a Levitical priest. God was the portion of his inheritance. Remember, the Levites did not receive a portion of land. They were to be sprinkled throughout the land that was given to the tribes of Israel, but they were not to receive an inheritance of their own because the Lord was their inheritance. So when David says here, you are the portion of my inheritance, you might think of, say, in the, um, in the parable of the prodigal son. You might remember the, the one son given his portion of inheritance before time, so to speak, in requesting of his father. David's saying the portion of my inheritance that I've received is you. You are my portion. And he says to the Lord, you are my cup. Puts it in the language, and my cup, but that's basically what he's saying. The word cup here could speak of benefits enjoyed. You picture a host kind of preparing a table with a cup that runs over, to use language from Psalm 23. A cup could also speak of one's lot in life. You see instances in the scriptures where it's used in a rather micro way. To speak of a, a cup of suffering, for instance, but it could speak to one's lot in life. But David is saying right here, you are my cup. You are my inheritance. And not only did God sovereignly dispense to David the lot that he had, namely the inheritance of himself. That's what David is talking about here. You have given me a good lot. You've given me yourself. But notice also the text, and it's a beautiful picture of not only sovereign grace in God dispensing the lot, but sustaining grace. Because he tells God, you maintain my lot. So God sovereignly dispensed it to David, sovereign grace, and God graciously maintained it, sustaining grace. God not only saves, He keeps. He not only begins the work, He completes the work. In verse 6, it's as though David looked at his lot in life when he says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Again, using that metaphor, like the boundary lines that I have been given, the proverbial plot of land that is my life that I have received is one with which I am well pleased. Whereas he said, yes, I have a good inheritance. What a picture of how God can satisfy a person's soul regardless of the circumstances that they find themselves in. He's praying for God to preserve him, yet at the same time he can say, I've got a good inheritance. I have a beautiful lot that's been given to me. It reminds me of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, which is often referred to as an epistle of joy, yet it was written during a time that Paul was under confinement. He was during, it was during a time of imprisonment, yet he's known to write with such joy in that epistle. Some years back, um, Back in 2016, I came across a story in uh, Our Daily Bread by Henry G. Bosch. Told a story about a, a young man who had tongue cancer. He was in Germany and he was about to be operated on by a skilled surgeon 
And the skill surgeon said to him shortly before the surgery was to take place, if you wish to say anything before we administer the anesthetic, now is your opportunity, for I must warn you that they will be the last words that you will ever utter in this world. And after a long pause, the man said, Praise God for Jesus. How do you say that when you're on the operating table? Unless Jesus is that soul satisfying. And you could say, regardless of what happens to me, I have a beautiful inheritance. I've been granted a good lot. It's as though a true view of the one true God affects the way you view everything else. And if you are a Christian and if you're seeing things rightly in a moment, you know 1 Thessalonians 5.18 has application to you in any circumstance. That in all circumstances, you can give thanks. Even in the incredibly difficult ones, namely because, per this verse, God is your present and future inheritance. So wherever you find yourself, you say, I have a good inheritance. A present and future one. I don't have a bad lot in life. I've been given a good lot, and it's an eternally gracious one. The appreciation continues in verse 7 where we read, I will bless the Lord or Yahweh who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. So when David writes at the beginning of verse 7, I will bless the Lord, the language clearly connotes praise and gratitude directed towards the Lord, who he esteems to be in this context, a faithful instructor who has given him counsel. This is part of the blessing of having Yahweh as your inheritance, is that he is also your faithful instructor. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. Now, a good question for us to ask as New Testament Christians is, well, how does God give you counsel? Where does God give you your counsel? Where do you get it from? Well, I think the good answer is to be found, of course, in the Word of God. And the Word of God points to the Word of God being the primary answer to that question. In Psalm 119, verse 24, the psalmist wrote, Your testimonies, meaning your word, your law, are my delight. They are my counselors. The counsel of a Christian, and even an Old Testament saint, is fundamentally founded upon God's revealed truth. So the good counsel that we give ought to be derived from and or in line with the counsel that we have received from God's word. They are my counselors. So the counsel we give is derived from that. David went a step further. You see, in the second half of verse 7, he says, My heart, interestingly, in Hebrew, literally my kidneys. Not language that we would readily use, like my kidneys also instruct me in the night seasons. And if somebody's saying that, it's probably not suggesting something good. If your kidneys are instructing you in the night, you're probably having some sort of discomfort. (laughs) But if you were in David's shoes, or sandals, so to speak, you would be thinking of the kidneys as the seat of one's emotions. That was the idea. So when you see in our English translation, heart, well, that's basically what's connoted. My heart instructs me in the night seasons. Now, I don't think David is saying something divorced from what he said in the beginning of verse 7. It's not like he's saying, I get counsel from two places. I get it from God, and I get it from my heart. You know, He's following his own heart. Takes him on magical adventures. Wherever he goes, when he follows his heart. No, no, no. I think the idea is this. They're connected. 
that God has given him counsel. And as he's meditating upon that counsel in the night watches, to use language from Psalm 63, he finds himself further instructed as he's meditating on God's Word. My heart also instructs me. This is not an unbelieving heart. It's not unbelieving kidneys. This is the believing heart that has received God's counsel and is meditating on it in the evening. And this is an incredible cause for thanksgiving. God gives His Word, which we know, per the Scriptures, is a lamp. And as a result, there is light, even in the night. David finds his heart instructing him in the night seasons as he reflects upon God's Word, no doubt. Now in verse 8, David's present confidence in God starts to look towards the future. In verse 8 we read, I have set the Lord, or Yahweh, always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. So when David wrote, I have set Yahweh always before me, the idea is that he had Yahweh in the forefront of his mind's eye. It's like right in front. I live in view of God. I not only live before the face of God, but I live with God before my face, is the idea. Why? So as to follow Him, where appropriate, so as to emulate Him. I have the Lord always before me. A kind of place of preeminence with regards to focus. I have the Lord always before me. Now to take it a step further, just briefly... And so as to apply this text a little bit more personally, what does it mean for you to have the Lord always before you? If we are going to interpret Scripture with Scripture, I think it looks like setting the Lord before you with respect to setting His Word before your eyes and your mind. I say that because in Psalm 18, verse 22, David wrote, For all His judgments were before me, and I did not put away His statutes from me. So judgments and statutes there being essentially synonymous with God's revealed truth and His will, they were before me. Likewise, in Psalm 119, verse 30, reading from the ESV, the psalmist wrote, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. For a New Testament Christian, it could be found in us setting before our eyes Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's what it looks like for us. Thinking on God's truth, thinking upon the Son of God, putting the Lord always before me. And then he says in the second half of verse 8, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. So David is saying, because Yahweh is at my right hand, which was a position of honor and exaltation, like an advocate at the right hand, if you use Psalm 109 verse 31, or like a warrior at his right hand, Psalm 110 verse 5. A warrior that would stand between him and all who would come against him. Because the Lord is at my right hand in this position of exaltation and honor, like an advocate and like a warrior, I shall not be moved. I will remain steadfast, essentially David is saying, even despite the prospect of death, which we'll see was likely implied shortly, he had stability because of Yahweh's proximity. And so it is true for all the people of God. You have stability because of your Savior's proximity. Verse 9 then is the expected outworking in verse 8. Therefore, in light of verse 8, therefore, my heart is glad 
and my glory, which could be an implication of, of life when you see how it's used in Psalm 7.5. It could be, as Alec Mortier notes, all that is honorable within me when you see that word glory here. My heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. So David had, per the text, gladness, joy, and hope in light of his graciously given future confidence. Now the language that's used here connotes how he was praising God with his whole being. You just look at the language here. My heart is glad, my glory rejoices, and my flesh also will rest in hope. He's referring essentially to the both material and immaterial part of man. The spirit part of man and the flesh part of man. Basically saying, all of me is hopeful. All of me is rejoicing. All of me is glad. Why? In light of verse 8. In light of the fact that he's at my right hand and I won't be moved. Now, a quick note here, because if you were to read um, the quotation of this by Peter in Acts chapter 2, you would see instead of the word glory that's used here in verse um, 9, you would see the word tongue. The word tongue. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. And you say, well, why is that? Well, there's at least two reasons, maybe more, as to why there's that change there when he's quoting from the Septuagint. One reason might be because the word glory that's used here may be akin to tongue. And you can see that perhaps, maybe a little bit of a stretch. In Psalm 30, verse 12, it could just simply be that the Septuagint captured the idea of the original Hebrew better than the Masoretic text. And the Septuagint text came earlier than the Masoretic text anyway. Either way, what David is saying is clear. In light of, God having, in light of him having God alongside of him, he's happy, he's joyful, and he is hopeful. Now the interesting thing about this verse is that the causality of it is not only connected to verse 8. What do I mean by that? Look at the beginning of verse 9. It says, therefore, right? That's connecting it to verse 8. In light of verse 8... Therefore, verse 9. But there's further causality, because look at the beginning of verse 10. For, so there's causality both ways. In light of verse 8, I'm rejoicing, but I'm also rejoicing in light of verse 10. I have hope also in light of verse 10. What does he say in verse 10? For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, immediately, we see David's hope. Though we may not immediately see the Messiah, but both are there. David's hope is there, and the Messiah is there. David expressed first, in the beginning of verse 10, that Yahweh would not leave his soul in Sheol, in the place of the dead. In other words, David was expressing his confidence that the grave was not the final stop for him. The grave was not the final stop for him. God would not leave his soul in the place of the dead. A little bit more we're going to see after in verse 11 that God was going to show him the path of life and the path of life did not stop with the end of life in this life, but it would lead right into God's presence. God would not abandon his soul as though he was going to be disconnected from David. You will not leave my soul in Sheol. No, no, no. David was going to be Disconnected from the body, yes, but not disconnected from God. We'll see that more in verse 11. But then he went on to say in verse 10, watch what he says here, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Who is David talking about here? Well, the answer you get may be different depending upon who you speak with. 
If you're speaking with a higher critic, for instance, they may say something like, David's speaking of himself, and he is clearly wrong here. You may talk with some conservative commentators, they may say, well, David's maybe speaking of himself, but he doesn't realize that he's speaking beyond himself here. We could say undoubtedly when we look at the way Peter and Paul used this psalm and this verse, he's speaking about Jesus. He's speaking about the Messiah. This is precious. So if you want the answer that Peter and Paul would give you, Peter and Paul, as they spoke, carried along by the Holy Spirit, recorded in Scriptures, Peter, if you look in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 33, Paul, if you look at Acts 13, verses 35 to 39, they see this as referring to the Messiah, the one through whom there is the forgiveness of sins. Peter, by the way, even applied the first half of this verse, Psalm 16:10, to Jesus in Acts chapter 2 as well. Both Peter and Paul saw what this psalm, this part of the psalm, what it did not mean. They saw that it could not relate to David because David's tomb was still among the people. David's body had been corrupted. His body was decaying. And they make reference to that. But then they point out that he was speaking beyond himself. He was speaking of God's Holy One who would not see corruption, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would be in the grave for three days, but his body would not decay because he was only in the grave for three days and he was resurrected from the grave. So if you want to see who's being spoken about right here, you go to Acts chapter 2, Acts 13. But I want to suggest to you that you also see that implied in this psalm. And I want to help you see that rather briefly, or one way to see that. And I I do think there's something to this. When you walk through this psalm, you see a lot of my's that are referenced. I'll leave out the I's that are referenced as well. But you see a lot of my's, and then when you get to the end of verse 10 in Psalm 16, there's a sudden change that you hadn't seen up until this point. Watch this. I'm just going to scan through the psalm. I'm going to look at the my's. Not all the eyes, but just the mys. And I want you to feel the change. See the change, but also feel the change when we get to verse 10. David said, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Verse 2. Speaking of the saints, he said, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Verse 4. My lips. Verse 5. My inheritance. My cup. My lot. Verse 7. My heart. Verse 8, my right hand. Verse 9, my heart, my glory, my flesh. Beginning half of verse 10, my soul. Second half of verse 10, your holy one. I see a little bit of a shift there. As though within the psalm, David is using a lot of my's until it's a your. And the substance of his future confidence may be very well implied here the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is the substance of our future confidence. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead, and because He is the first fruits of those who have gone into the grave and have come out from the grave, we are not still in our sins and our faith is not futile. The ground of our future hope is found in the living Messiah. And all who believe in Him get to look to the ultimate fulfillment that awaits all of us, spoken of in verse 11. The last verse of the psalm, David writes, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David knew that God would show him the path of life. 
That path would not only be shown in this life, it would continue through this life, even through death. And following the train of thought in the psalm, David knew Sheol was not the end. There was a path from this life through death into the presence of Yahweh. And that's what he connotes right here. As a result of the work of Christ, ultimately, David would be brought from a place and state We'd be brought to a place and state of everlasting felicity, to use language from Matthew Poole. Now, when you look at the language here, in your presence is fullness of joy, you could render that expression like this, before your face is fullness of joy. That's what awaits the people of God. Back in um, 2016, my dad had, um, November or the end of October of that year, my dad had taken out an old VCR. Basically, all VCRs at that point in time were old, so he took out our old VCR. And I remember on one Tuesday night that we were over there, um, he was excited to show us that he had gotten the old VCR out. And he had videos of some of those old um, holidays together. Uh, Christmas morning was one that we were watching together. And um, I was five, my sister was about five months old, and uh, it was one of the Christmases that I, that I remembered um, pretty decently, because I got a G.I. Joe space shuttle, which was bigger than me at the time, at least in the box, because the box was bigger than me, and uh, we're watching the video, and I don't, know, I don't know my joy quotient in that moment when I was five years old, but I have to imagine it was pretty high. It wasn't at its max capacity, but it was pretty high. I could see it from just watching the video. As I became older, when the holidays would come, things started to change a little bit. Because you know when those holidays come, you may have that feeling like you just want to bottle it. And you know you can't. And you know like the ocean tides, there's going to be the tides and undertoes of life. There will be joys and there will be griefs. And you just wish you could bottle it. So, so, so many of the times that I would have after that were kind of mingled and tainted with sadness amidst joy. But when we look at a psalm like this, we're reminded that there is coming a point and it can affect the present life in which we live now when there will be a joy that is indiminishable. That it's not going to be like augmented and diminished. It's just going to be at its max capacity. And that presumably we'll need glorified bodies. I don't know how it works for disembodied saints right now, but presumably we're going to need glorified bodies to enjoy that everlasting life to its maximum capacity. Though doubtless for saints who are in the presence of God right now, they're enjoying joy to its maximum capacity by virtue of being in the presence of the living God. And there's going to be no ebbs and flows. There is just going to be fullness of joy. The ups and downs of the carousel of joy and mourning in this life will give way to a moment when the glorified redeemed find the cravings of their untainted hearts fully satisfied every moment forever before the face of God. And David drives that home. Look how he drives that home. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's as though God is a great king, a gracious benefactor, and at his right hand, there's a never-ending supply of joys and blessings at his right hand. And you can't read through that as a New Testament Christian without thinking of who is at his right hand and who is the center of all of our joy. Our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. At the right hand of our Father is our Savior in whom we will find joy forevermore. And in this psalm here we have the beautiful picture of 
the pleasures that are inexhaustibly lavished upon the beloved of God forever. So then, joy indiminishable and joy that is inextinguishable is the pleasant lot of the redeemed. So don't ever say you have a bad lot in life. You and I have been given a pleasant lot. When you think about Romans 8.18 where it says that the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Well, Think about it this way. The momentary pleasures of this life, regardless of how great they are, aren't even worthy to be compared with the joy that will be revealed when we are in the presence of our God and of our Savior. What a great moment to look forward to. Joy indiminishable and inextinguishable in the presence of God forever. And you might say, well, how is that going to be? How how could that happen? Well, I know it's a cloudy day outside, but imagine if it was a sunny day outside. If you were to go, and if it was a really sunny day outside, and if you were to just look up straight at the sun, not with your eyes open, but with your eyes closed, if you were to do that, right, you would just feel warmth on your face. It would just be a consequence of just looking straight at the sun and the sun directly hitting your face. That's just a creaturely metaphor that gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what it will be like to be before the face of God. That as His beloved, just being before His face will consequentially lead to joy forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, that even though what we deserve is wrath forevermore because of our sins, we thank You for Your great love and the great love wherewith You loved us and that You have not appointed us to wrath, but to salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And with wrath being fully exhausted, with Your justice being fully satisfied, we as the redeemed of God who having been shown the path of life get to look forward to, get to long for that moment when we are before Your face beholding Your Son at Your right hand and the joy and pleasure that is ours forevermore. Thank You, Heavenly Father, for the pleasant lot that You have given to us. And that we could say like David, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. So Father, help us. Help us to live our lives thankful, joyful, and hopeful. In light of the fact that we can look to You for preservation and help, in light of the fact that You are our Adonai, You are our Lord and our Master, Thank You for the saints that You've given us to enjoy on the earth and they are the excellent ones in whom is our delight. Thank You for bringing us to a place where we repudiate idolatry. Thank You that You are our cup and our portion and our inheritance. Thank You that You instruct us. Thank You, Heavenly Father, that because You are at our right hand, as it were, we shall not be moved. And thank You because Your Son has been raised from the dead we can be assured that we will be raised also into Your very presence. Hallelujah. And we will enjoy fullness of joy forevermore and a glorified body as well. Thank You. May You be glorified, Father, in our lives and in our meditation. May our heart instruct us even this night, perhaps, as we think on this psalm. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.